Hello and welcome to On the Line. I'm Carl Richter. Texarkana, Arkansas Police Chief Michael Cram has been on the job since late October 2022. We talked about his experience, crime in Texarkana, public perception of law enforcement, his goals for the department, and more. Be sure to check the show notes for a link to an extensive Gazette profile of Cram we published last November. Here's my conversation with Chief Michael Cram. Joining me in the studio is Texarkana, Arkansas Police Chief Michael Cram. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. And I guess it's not too late to say welcome to Texarkana. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm still considered the new chief. I think I still have that new chief smell. Yeah, it's been, what, about four or five months now? Uh, 24th of October is when I actually started. Okay. So, yeah. uh, so that's plenty of time to sort of get your feet on the ground, I guess. Um, I got my feet wet, and they're starting to dry out a little bit. <laughs> there so. you go. Uh, just for, I'm going to link to a story we did on you that really uh, goes into depth about your career and your background, but I wanted to talk to, about a couple of things on your resume. Uh, first of all, I'm really curious about the FBI Academy. How does that work? Can you go study there without intending to become an FBI agent? So it's it's not the FBI Academy. It's, oh, okay. It's the National Academy. Okay. So it's the FBI National Academy, and, and that is something that was started decades ago when Hoover was still over the FBI. Oh, okay. And it was begun as a way to uh, build relationships between the federal jurisdictions and mm-hmm. municipal and county jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really, if, if policing had a senior executive academy, uh huh. That's what the FBI National Academy is about. Probably less than one tenth of one percent of all police officers end up going. You have to be at least a lieutenant in mm-hmm. rank with your agency when you go. Um, you're there for about three months. Mm-hmm. You're living in a dorm room style thing with, with other police executives uh-huh. and uh, taking master's level courses through the University of Virginia and uh, getting to you know build relationships with people from. I had people there from. I had the police chief from Honolulu was mm-hmm. there, and he became police chief while he was there. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he became chief, police, chief, police chief over the phone while he was there. Um, I think it was Honolulu. It was one of the, the larger cities in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I had people from North Dakota. We had international students from Saudi Arabia, from Syria. Um, had an Interpol guy there from uh, Romania, Bulgaria, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was people from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was so. It was a really. It's an enlightening experience because you get to see, and people from other policing environs, and you get to discuss uh, the challenges that they face mm-hmm. and have faced over their careers. And what you find is there is a very distinct similarity mm. in the problems we all face. Yeah. So it, it's it's a good it's a good thing to to build on relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, out of that, I can tell you that uh, we built relationships through people that attended from my department, my old department at League City, uh, that assisted us in in solving cold case homicides and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff because we could reach out to people from other states or with other experiences. Yeah, and uh, that's a huge advantage instead of just kind of 
shuffling around in the dark trying to figure out which way to go. You can talk to people who've actually been through some things that you're trying to go through at the time, mm-hmm. and it helps. That's really interesting. Uh, other thing I wanted to ask you about is you did some time as an assistant city manager. Correct? I did. How did that uh, add to your perspective on law enforcement? What it what it gave me was two things. One, it told me I never wanted to be at City Hall again in an office. <laughs> Um, but it's a great experience in that, you know, as a police chief, you typically deal with one of the bigger budgets in any city. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you only deal with that to a degree. And while while the departments to be functional for the city have to really work well together, mm-hmm. um, especially during trying times like Hurricane Harvey when I was police chief down there. Mm. Um, you have to be able to get along really well with the other departments, but you don't understand until you start seeing from those other department head perspectives, when you get over the, some of those other departments, what piece of the pie they need as well. Right. And right. so it, it changes your perspective. Uh, it, it changes one's perspective dramatically in understanding how budgets work mm-hmm. and how, yes, each department is going to fight and vie for uh, their piece of the pie and their right. breadcrumbs. Right. But um, you know, it was, it was there that I learned you know, a mile of roadway costs a million bucks. Yep. And if you've seen any of the impacts or the uh, recent surveys or studies that we had done on roadway conditionings, you know that we've got many millions of dollars worth of roadways that we have to completely rehab because they're right. they, they're beyond end of life. And that's something the public is very uh, vocal about. They, they And they are. But you understand as the police chief, then I can't come back and ask for 10 people a year. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not a doable thing because we don't have the money to do that. Right. We have to start putting money back into infrastructure projects that have not been cared for for decades. Right. And so it, it gives me a different perspective, um, and it, it helps me because then I can explain to the officers mm-hmm. why, sure, we need to get certain things, but let me tell you why we shouldn't ask for every single crumb that we can imagine. Right. Because – you know, <clears throat> the the director of uh, public works right now, Tyler Richards, mm-hmm. he's got four crews filling potholes. Right. Every available body he's got is yeah. filling potholes right now, and especially with the rains we've had. Mm-hmm. And so I understand the challenges that those other directors or department heads are having. Um, and so it makes, I think it makes it easier for me to build bridges mm-hmm. uh, and working relationships with those other departments of the city. Great. What's unique? What's different about law enforcement in a border city? What have you noticed that um, that maybe you didn't have experience with before? Um, so one of the reasons I didn't really care for City Hall and, <laughs> and chose to get out of that environment after four years is I'm I'm very black and white, mm. and I'm I'm not a politician by any stretch. If you ask me an opinion, I'm going to give it to you. And if I think you need to take a bath, I'm going to tell you you need to, you stink. <laughs> and so those are not things that are popular with most elected officials. Um, but it's me. It's who I am, and I'm yeah. comfortable in my skin. But the interesting thing about the by state is we have Miller County, or we have Bowie County, Texarkana, Arkansas, and Texarkana, Texas police departments there and part of, and the sheriff actually has prisoners up inside that building. Um, 
We have shared parking spaces. We have a shared dispatch system and record system. Um, and truthfully, all of our all of our detectives mm-hmm. literally can walk across the hall and talk to each other. Yeah. And uh, so, in that regard, it's a great thing that we have all of us housed in one location. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's true. If we all had to have our own standalone dispatch, we'd end up paying a lot more for dispatching yeah. records. Yeah. Um, and for the technology that goes into that, because the amount of money you have to spend on a records management system and a computer-aided dispatch system and all that kind of stuff uh, is in the millions. And right. so we're able to share the cost of that. And that helps a lot. Um, but there's always the internal politics, if you will, mm-hmm. of me and the other chief and the sheriff of Bowie County getting together to try to iron out any little gripes or complaints that we have, and then also make decisions for budgeting and that kind of stuff. Um, when it comes to the shared systems that we have over dispatch and records. And so far it seems like it works really well. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been in place for over 30 years. Right. And so a lot of the the wrinkles have already been ironed out on the new kid on the block. And so really I'm kind of learning the, the ropes of how everything works. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's unique in that you're forced into this, uh, stepbrother type relationship, mm-hmm. but it it's easier than that. We all have shared experiences and shared concerns and shared challenges, mm-hmm. um, for money and space and people and all of that. So, uh, when we get together and talk, we're all coming in with kind of the same things on our mind. So right. it's not that bad. <clears throat> what do you see, um, when you look at Texarkana crime, what sorts of crimes, happen here um, are prevalent here, I guess I should say. And how is that different, if at all, from other places? So let me start with the similarities. And this is the tragic similarity of any any city in America that you go to. Mm -hmm. Your number one reported crime is family-related domestic violence incidents. That's our number one reported crime against people. Mm-hmm. You know, theft and theft is usually a matter of opportunity. Is is there something there worth stealing, right? Right. But what is what is the same tragically across every jurisdictional boundary is families imparting harm to one another. Mm. And uh that's that's one of the sadder things that police departments deal with. Um, the different thing about Texarkana is, and that's not, this isn't so different from other, other jurisdictions, but, um, the, the amount of juvenile crime that we have, especially now that we don't have a juvenile detention center readily available to take kids to is, is a challenge. Um, the amount of gun crime for these juveniles and that kind of stuff is just, it's, it's sad because it's, you know, you can't ask the police to come in and solve these miscreant juveniles right. problems after they're already 15, 16, 17 years old. Uh, they're kind of products of their home life or the lack thereof then. Yeah. And so um, we do a lot in the community. We try to, we try to um, have an impact on kids at a younger age where we can. Uh, when you... Uh, in fact, an email came out yesterday or the day before yesterday from one of our sergeants 
um, asking for officers to come participate in a field day at a local school where they're yeah. all out running around and, and you'll see our officers over there and just trying course, to be a positive, the pride Academy too, the pride Academy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just that one pride Academy thing. It's the other things where we try to get to some, some positive interaction with kids at a young age. So they've realized we're not the enemy. Yeah. We're, we're just people. And, uh, we're people, tasked with responding when other people are having their worst days. Yeah. And so uh, we don't want that to be the only time you see us in your life mm-hmm. when you're already having your worst day. And then we're coming to take mom or dad or husband or wife or something away. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things that I really like about this department is the men and women who work here um, overwhelmingly are very committed to community involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, they love it. They, we have emails going out all the time. Um, about some other event that we can go to and just interact with kids or let them just be seen. Yeah. And that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Once you get to the kids that are 15, 16, 17 years old, you can't ask us to come in and raise those kids. Right. We're kind of late in the game for that. We're just tasked with kind of cleaning up. You're sort of touching on the next thing I wanted to get to, which is you've been in law enforcement a long time. How have you seen, the public perception of law enforcement change over that time and how has law enforcement had to react if at all? Well, public perception in law enforcement has changed, but I would tell you that if, and please don't take this the wrong way. If, Mm -hmm. if a person were to only go on what they see in print media or, or look at on the news, they would think that everybody in the United States hates police officers. And that is not the case. Yeah. Um, most people in America still support police officers by and large. Most people still support police officers. Um, the problem we have is when I started, we didn't have social media, you know, back decades ago. Um, and now every singular event in which a police officer makes a mistake Mm-hmm. or is even appears to make a mistake. Social media runs amok and tries to tell the story and slant the story. And, and so what I've seen is it's become very important for police to get ahead of telling the correct story, the truth. Right. Uh, because if we let the social media uh, hounds go out there and right. tell our story for us, we're not going to benefit from that. And so that's one of the largest changes I've seen. I would tell you that the perception towards the police has not changed dramatically. If you went door to door and interviewed people and asked them, uh, do you, yeah. do you still trust the police when you, who do you call when you have an emergency? They're going to say the police. Right. Um, and that I would tell you that most police officers by and large are there to do a good job, mm-hmm. but they're human beings. Uh, they're human beings with, you know, bad days when they come to work, they're human beings with bad decisions they make occasionally. Um, but we've, we've put a lot of technology into place to kind of help us be better stewards of what's right and wrong Mm -hmm. when it comes to dealing with the the public. And, uh, and by that, I mean, all the, the body cameras in car camera systems and that kind of thing. Um, we have things in place where our supervisors have to go back and review videos of their police officers every week, two weeks, month. Uh, I never knew that. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, that's part of any poly, any good, um, any good video, video system policy for, um, 
a police department usually includes something about review. Hey, everyone. I want you to know how proud I am to welcome Hostetler Roofing as a sponsorship partner. I had the pleasure to meet with some of Hostetler's staff, and I could tell they really mean it when they say they're all about honesty, integrity, and accountability. They get it that contractors don't have the best reputation, and they want to change people's minds about that by setting an example. Everything Hostetler Roofing does is about taking care of customers, whether it's a commercial or residential job, maintenance, repair, or a whole new roof. That's why they offer 5- and 10-year workmanship warranties on everything they do. Hostetler has a huge variety of roofing styles and materials available, and they're happy to help you with options to pay for their work, from affordable financing to applying for government grants. It all starts with a free inspection. Just call and ask, and before you know it, you'll get the best advice out there about your roof. Visit HostetlerRoofing.com or call 870-557-4797 to get started. And please mention you heard about them here. Right. Uh, by supervisors, and we're no different. Um, our supervisors review a lot of those. And uh, what, you, what's, what you wouldn't expect and what I didn't expect because I was – I was, I had just blown out my knee and I was, I had just gotten surgery, uh, nearly 30 years ago. And, uh, the school came up while I was on light duty for in-car camera systems and training your people to use them. So I was, I was, I was sent to that mm-hmm. and I brought back a body of instruction and started training our people on how to use these camera systems we were getting. And, uh, the officers were really kind of intimidated by the, uh Oh, everything is going to be out there. Right. And, uh, what we found because you, you, in any police department, you do a lot more internal investigations of your people than you, than you see coming from the outside. So, um, a citizen driven complaint versus an internally driven complaint for a mistake an officers made internally will outnumber the external complaints. Mm -hmm. Five, six to one. Wow. Because what, what really, the citizens... That really runs counter to public perception. Well, that, that it sees yeah. police departments as insular and... No, police departments are much harder on bad cops than public is. Mm. Um, and, but that those are internal HR things, and you handle those in an internal HR fashion. They're not public. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, every good police department, every every good agency will undertake a lot more internally generated complaints against us officers, because if we're not babysitting ourselves well enough and we're expecting the public to do it, we're, we're leaving something out. But what we found with those video systems is they protect the officers from false complaints. Mm -hmm. And I've, I can tell you that I've done dozens and dozens of internal investigations on, on subordinates throughout my career. Um, I've had one complaint where the video and audio totally showed the officer at fault in all those years. And he was, I mean, obviously held accountable for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But in most cases, the video systems are really there as a protective measure for the police because they protect us from a lot of the false claims that are made against police officers. And a lot of times when you, 
in the heat of the moment, when people are having their worst day, they don't necessarily think or remember those, recall those things clearly right? Uh, after the fact. And sometimes you can sit with them and show them the video and they're like, oh, I didn't yeah. see it that way. Or, right, oh, right. I didn't realize that. And uh, that just is a level of clarification to, like you said, demonstrate to the public, hey, we're taking care of our own internally and we hold ourselves pretty accountable to a higher level. So, um, have you come up with any goals or seen anything that needs to be changed in the department since you've been here? We've made some changes. I, uh, <clears throat> one of the first things I did was we didn't have a, uh, a centralized way to hold ourselves accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, that had been kind of spread across all the different supervisors at the department. And I met with every single employee of the police department when I came in. They had a few continual complaints, very consistent complaints. Uh, one was they they thought that our internal investigations, our complaints against police officers, mm-hmm. uh, were kind of handled in the dark. Okay. And um, another one that was probably more prevalent, the most prevalent one we had was a good old boy system. Mm. That if you were in with the chief's guys or the boss's guys or something, uh, you get away with more. Right. Um, well, obviously, I was a new guy. I wasn't a good old boy. So nobody's in my good old boy system. All right. But the department I came from was very well structured in that. And I had had a hand in writing some of that mm-hmm. and, and making sure we perpetuated that. Um, so I, we were lucky enough, had uh, one of our very seasoned lieutenants was retiring. And so I'm, when he retired, I brought him back the next day as a civilian and he reports directly to the chief of police and he handles all of our internal complaints and external complaints against officers. He is the sole gatekeeper for every complaint. And I review every single one. They all come to me before there's any decision on them. And, uh, and of course I don't make those in a vacuum. I have two captains and an assistant chief as part of my executive staff. And anytime a complaint comes up after the investigation's completed, we all study it. And we want to be sure that we're consistent in how we handle any disciplinary matters because ultimately you don't, I don't discipline people to punish. We discipline to change behaviors if they're the, if they're the improper behaviors. Right. So we want to take whatever corrective action we can to change a behavior because it's very difficult to get new officers. So yeah. if we can salvage an officer by correcting mad behaviors, then it not only improves the department, but it keeps a valuable, knowledgeable source of information and ability for our department. Where are you on staffing? I know that there were a few open positions when you took office. Um, How's that going? We're doing well. Uh, One of the other things we reorganized was um, a few of our specialty positions. We kind of gathered those together and streamlined some of the way we do recruiting, staffing, training, all that. Um, if you read that long article about that on uh, that interview that mm-hmm. I did previously with the Gazette, yeah, uh, I referred to one of our sergeants, a guy named Rick Cockrell, as the Energizer Bunny with too much caffeine. Right. <laughs> well, Rick and uh, an officer named Claudia Phelps share an office right next door to mine, uh, 
and they handle all recruiting efforts and hiring new hires and all that kind of stuff, get them through the academy and everything. Right now, we have probably more officers in the background hiring process than we've had in years uh, mm-hmm. because those two have really, really gotten after it. Um, that said, uh, just to kind of give you a hint on how long – if we lose an officer or have somebody retire, how long it is before we have an officer to take that person's place, yeah. an actual functional body in a patrol car. So if somebody retires tomorrow, then we have to then test to fill that position. Well, we have to schedule the test and advertise and all that in advance. Right now we're under an emergency um, allowance by the civil service commission so we don't have to wait for two prescribed periods to test. We can test at any time okay. because we're short. And our civil service uh, board has allowed us to do that. The commission has. Normally it would be two Normally, scheduled times a two year. two scheduled tests a okay. year. But because of our, our staffing levels and that kind of thing, and it's we, we've been given an allowance there. So if we hold the test, say we have an, uh, uh, somebody leave tomorrow, mm-hmm. it'll probably be about a month before we can test somebody new. Okay. After that, if they pass the test and the physical fitness testing afterwards, then we put them through a background process. That background process takes two to three weeks at least. Mm-hmm. Okay, So now we're looking at almost two months. Then we have to wait for the police academy to start. If, we're, if they're hired, we fa- wait for the police academy to start. Um, that might be another couple months. Then the academy is about three months. Wow. So if, if everything worked perfectly – and somebody left tomorrow, you're looking at probably six months before you get somebody back from the academy. Well, then our field training program is anywhere from four to six months. Right. Before you can actually put them in a car and trust them to behave properly and live through the shift and not get anybody else hurt or killed. Right. Right. So you're looking at a minimum of a year, year and a half before you have somebody that's actually knowledgeable and functional to answer calls on their own and not do the wrong thing. Yeah. And that's if everything goes perfect. Right. I imagine this, you could hire someone uh, who has been in the profession for a while also, and that would take a less time, I would assume. It would. If they're currently um, a certified peace officer in mm-hmm. the state of Arkansas, it takes less time. You don't have to send them through an academy. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of, while we pay well for Arkansas standards, yeah, uh, we're in competition with everybody close to the East Texas side and the yeah. Texas side tends to pay more. Yeah. And so we're competing um, with all those other agencies for for hiring people with experience. And uh, there are smaller agencies that even have it tougher than us where they can hire somebody and get them through academy and then they're certified and then go get hired anywhere. Right. And so they have even more turnover than yeah. we do, which is a challenge. But yeah, it's always a... Uh, see what everybody else is paying because we've got to stay close enough to, to be marketable. Right. To compete. Yeah. Uh, but that's not, that's not solely a Texarkana, Arkansas you know, problem. That's any police department anywhere. Yeah. I was about to ask you and uh, generally um, have the, has the number of people who want to get into law enforcement uh, increased, decreased, stayed the same over the years. It's been difficult for the last decade and a half at least mm-hmm. to get quality candidates for police officers. Um, it's not a new phenomenon. It's gotten harder. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, as I mentioned earlier, some of the stuff that people are led to believe is the reality of the policing perspective and the policing career in general. Um, it's not an easy job, but yeah. the public mostly supports us. Uh, it's just that that's not what is the norm in, in what's getting out there for the public. And so right. they don't see it as a, as their first choice necessarily. It's got to be kind of a calling. And truthfully, this job has to be a calling regardless. Yeah. Um, you give up a lot to do this job. You give up a lot in your personal life. Um, you end up carrying a lot of stuff, bad memories and bad experiences around with you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, uh, then again, you're denigrated by some people in society and the media every time, you know, you're living in this fishbowl and, yep. uh, it can be difficult. So it's not for everybody. And, uh, so that limits our, our pool of perspective, um, our perspective officers anyway. And, uh, then finding the ones who really want to do it. What can residents do to help the police department? Be our eyes and ears. Hmm. So we are only good if, we have the support of our residents and we are only effective if we are getting information from our residents. Um, that takes trust. That takes um, us getting out there and talking to people. And that that's a continual effort because every time, every time somebody turns on a television or opens a newspaper or turns on their, their phone or their, their um, tablet and, read some article or see some mistake a, a police officer genuinely made, um, it adds to distrust. And those are not the norm of the day in policing. Those are the rare, the rare air, if you will, right. of, of our, our, our jobs and our lives. And they make it so much harder for every other person who still wears a uniform and a badge, um, all the way from recruiting to retention to, Gaining support of the public. Yeah. Is there anything else you want people to know? Um, well, this goes out to both sides, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Around so, the world. Around the world. <laughs> oh, wow. I've got a big audience all of a sudden. Um, I, uh, I would tell you that the, the men and women who work for the city of Texarkana, Arkansas, um, surprised the heck out of me when I came here. When I met with them all one-on-one. These people care about this place. Most of them are from this area. Mm-hmm. This is their roots. This is where they grew up. This is what matters to them. And I'll, and I'll extend that. Um, I'll extend that to City Hall. Um, you have people working at City Hall who are very competent and capable professionals. Um, I was I was talking with, um, we had a staff meeting at City Hall yesterday, and I'm part of a transitional team that the city manager, Jay Ellington, who's leaving, by the way, yeah. uh, have put in place to kind of help make sure we don't let anything fall through the cracks. And and I was talking to those other members of that transitional team, and, uh, man, they care about this city. And, they, you know, this is their families are here, their roots are here. Um, I've been very impressed because it's a much smaller city than I came from. Mm-hmm. But we've got uh, – and you know Jay Ellington's leaving. Yes. Uh-huh. So he'll be gone in a couple of weeks. And, uh, we've got really competent, capable people to keep the wheels on until the, the city decides on, on selecting a replacement for the city manager. Um, 
I'll tell you, most people don't know this. We've got Tyrande Henderson. She was recognized as the number one outstanding uh, municipal finance director in the whole entire state of Arkansas. She's just something else to work with. Uh, we got Tyler Richards, who's running our uh, public works department, and he is tireless. Mm-hmm. Works like a um, and there's there's a lot of trepidation right now about um, you know what's going to happen in the interim. Um, I can tell you from my experiences the when you have when you have a city where the department heads all work really well together. And this one, they really do. This is a real team atmosphere. Um, You can really derail everything if you bring the wrong person in. And so uh, the board of directors have, has a tough row. I think they have a really easy choice in the transition though. Uh, I don't know what their plans are for filling the gap Uh with an interim. Um, But what you want to make sure is you can pay the bills and all that kind of stuff. So right. Tyronda Henderson has done that before. She's everybody respects her. Everybody trusts her. And, uh, it would, it would give the team continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I think, so I think that is an easy choice for the board. They don't have a, a lot of hand wringing they have to do there. Yeah. It would just make sense. Yeah. Um, but I know that whoever comes in is going to be a really lucky individual because the, the, people running the different departments at this city are really dedicated and they really enjoy what they do. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a good place to stop. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. I'm sure a lot of people be interested to hear your perspective and get to know you a little bit. All right. I appreciate the opportunity. Sure. I'll see you down the road. All right. Take care. On the line is a Texarkana Gazette podcast recorded in Star Bear Studio right here in downtown Texarkana, USA. Follow On The Line on Twitter at O-T-L-T-X-K and on our website, texarkanagazette.com slash podcast. To support the show, post a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. The show is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Carl Richter. And I'd love to hear from you email me at krichter at texarcanagazette.com. I'll see you next time on the line.